Welcome to On the Middle East, Al-Nanita's podcast on the big and interesting stories in the region. It's been exactly a month and a day since Turkey's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan and his Justice and Development Party won presidential and parliamentary elections amid widespread predictions that the opposition would prevail this time. Some observers say that with Erdogan's victory, the country's descent into full-blown authoritarianism is now irreversible. What is more, a sizable portion of the Turkish electorate appears to support this trend. Worse, the opposition is once again steeped in internal power struggles, yet its presence in what has become a rubber-stamp parliament helps legitimise Erdogan in the eyes of the world. With us here to discuss this bleak outlook is Yavuz Baydar, editor of the Free Turkey Press news site, who explains why he believes that Erdogan will keep winning and that his regime is here to stay. Welcome to our program, Yavuz. It's great to have you on our show today. Pleasure to be with you, Amberin. So you wrote a very grim piece in the aftermath of the May presidential and parliamentary elections in Turkey titled Game Over. You basically said that democracy in Turkey, however flawed, is basically dead and there seems to be almost no chance of resurrecting it and worse, that Erdogan was given a popular mandate. So yeah, the people gave him that power. So carte going, blanche. Uh, yes, carte blanche. So going forward, what can we expect from Turkey? I mean, we have local elections coming up in March. Do mm. they do they matter? I think as far as I see, we are going to monitor and observe a path to even more clear defeat especially regarding the elections in Istanbul, because I am emphasizing that because that's the part of the local elections that matters most for Erdogan, who seems fixed and obsessed about retaking Istanbul. I I don't think he will mind that much about Ankara or, or any other city for that matter. Istanbul is where he was born politically, and it is a symbol in many ways in in the context of neo-Ottomanism, you know, regardless, former capital, financial center, etc. Many projects that he had started there, and he wants it back. Now, I mean, all in all, I think we are we are heading towards another big defeat. That's how I see it. Another big defeat, but you know, the way you lay it out in your article, it sounds like it's a foregone conclusion, regardless almost of what the opposition does. So I guess my next question to you is, I mean, is there any role even left for the opposition? You describe the parliament as a rubber stamp, a hall of illusions. I mean, what should people do? Should they just hang their hats and do nothing? Is, Is this the you know, end of the game, as you said in your article? Look, I I think Parliament as a rubber stamp office was a stated fact from the moment the referendum taking Turkey into an ultra-presidential system in April of 2017. That was the sealing and signing of Parliament as totally inefficient kind of notarius publicus pro-government type of office. 
That's how parliament functioned since then in the six years that passed. So it's nothing new. The only difference I think now is that parliament, after these existential elections in the centennial of Turkish Republic, is now confirmed once more, more powerfully as a rubber stamp office because of changes in, in, in the way it functions. In the past six years, you and I, many journalists observed people in the opposition coming out, screaming, shouting, speaking out without any result. It was like an echo chamber. I think parliament but is now an echo, echo, echo chamber. For Erdogan because it exactly. allows him to make exactly. a facade of legitimacy. That the paradox, paradox now, Amberin, is that the day after the second runoff of the elections, main opposition and other parties in opposition as well said, uh, questioned the legitimacy and fairness of the elections. That went on for some days. And then when parliament opened, they all went, the opposition deputies, running, gladly signing the, all the documents. And again, with most of them with all smiles in, in the oath ceremony. And as if all is happening in a normality, like in any election, like in Belgium or, or Canada, as if they will matter. Well, I mean, the, when you say the opposition, of course, we have different actors. You have this block that no longer exists, in my view, led by the main opposition party, the CHP, on the one hand. And then you have the Kurds on the other, and the Kurds still despite all the sort of disarray that we're witnessing in the aftermath of the election, which saw them lose 3%, is still the most cohesive group in Turkey, the one that still has, you know, a real voice and vision for its mm -hmm. own future. A and determination. Yes. Do you see the Kurds being able to influence in some way the future of Turkish politics in the immediate term, or are they also pretty much castrated? Mm. Well, the, the, I mentioned the composition of parliament up to 72, maybe, you know, one three-fourths of, of parliament are composed of, you know, ultra or not, or semi-nationalists, uh, Turkish nationalists and, and conservatives. That leaves even more narrow space for any sort of opening for even a minimum normality for, for, for Kurdish rights and demands for democratic rights, etc. So I think they will find themselves in a more squeezed position, given this constellation of parliament. That constellation offers Erdogan a lot of toys, so to speak, on the table to, to basically manipulate uh, and play with the nationalist conservative actors even inside the opposition bloc. So I think it will be a very, even more steep uphill battle for the elected Kurdish dep deputies. And the only possibility is the, I think they can see if Erdogan sees any benefits for his political future to approach the Kurds. That's, I think, the only possibility that one can see in the near future. Well, I mean, the main opposition party is currently steeped in internal battles over the leadership. And the right-wing nationalists are similarly, I think they see this low-hanging fruit because Bahçeli 
is now quite old and a battle of the for the succession for the leadership of the far right i think is shaping up and meral akshenar seems to be positioning herself on the one hand and then sinan ogan on the other possibly maybe suleiman soylu and even the head of this xenophobic sort of you know anti-immigrant mm. party that seemed to excite voters quite a bit so in fact erdogan has to do very little between now and the local elections it seems to me really he doesn't need any of them because they're so busy sort of self-destructing and once as you say his final goal of getting istanbul back is achieved then what is there anything left for him to quote unquote conquer or will he have consolidated this new regime and is it one that can that can outlive him do you think or is it down to just erdogan i think that's the big question now before us in mm-hmm. turkey more than anything because he remains the really the the only actor mm-hmm. in turkish politics of Extreme. any real consequence Extremely good points. I think when you mentioned consolidation of regime, many Kurds, Kurdish voters would basically call it consolidation of fascism in in many ways. I think what happens is that once, and generally speaking in the history of politics, you know, globally, when an autocrat starts walking on the path to increasingly hardcore regime, there's no way that he, A, gives up or leaves power peacefully by way of ballot boxes. Second, B, he, if he stops, he falls. This is like a bicycle ride. So a consolidation of regime, I think we will see whether or not Erdogan's political hunger, political appetite will be fed totally with the result of Istanbul and the local elections in general. But there's more. I think he will continue with two major points, conquering whatever is left of the the judiciary and in general Turkish political or state institutions. What we will see until May 2024, approximately two months after the local elections, all three justices, high judges of the Constitutional Court, appointed by former President Abdullah Gül, will see their uh, tenures ending. So all three, beginning from, I think, if I'm not correct, if I'm not wrong, November through May, all three will be appointed by Erdogan. And that means the balance, which is now 10 to 5 in 15-seat Constitutional Court, will be like 12 to 3 or 13 to 2, which means constitutional court will be basically subordinated to to the palace. But in general, what Erdogan's path and desire is to amend the constitution or to, to offer a new constitution with a lot of rhetoric about conservative values, family values, cultural, local cultural values, et cetera, et cetera, in the context of Turkish Islamic synthesis. And it will keep the the parliament busy and it will give Erdogan a lot of maneuvering room to even further consolidate his, his regime. And that's, I think, 
the reason why we should see that the consolidation regime, consolidation of regime will not have been completed with the local elections. There's more to expect. There's more, but you know, what about if you know something happened to Erdogan? You know, we're all of course you you have you have mentioned you also we have Erdogan, both frail, and also there are lots of rumors about about both of them, how much time they have left, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and also the succession. Yes, succession, especially in the far right, ultranationalist flank, is important. But there are now candidates. Most strongest candidate, I think, is Sinan Oğan, as far as I can see, because he is backed by Baku, Azerbaijani regime. And he is charismatic compared to the others, Süleyman Soylu or Ümit Özdağ. And also, I see also maybe a possibility that the battle in post-Bahçeli period will be taking place between in my opinion, Han and Meral Akşener. Uh, I think uh, we may be heading towards a merger between MHP and E-Party because what blocks and stops Akşener and his her friends in, in E-Party is basically once that block is one for one reason or another is a way of the, the path will be open. That's a very them. interesting projection because, I mean, if they do merge, as you say, and given the fact that the Turkish public seems by and large to have a very nationalist tilt and something that, of course, is a result also of all these years of propaganda. It's not that anyone is born nationalist in Turkey. That's something I really reject very firmly. And we've seen how the public mood changed back in 2015 when Serhat Demirtas was able to draw 13% of the vote. But mm. setting that aside... I mean, does, doesn't then the Nationalist Party become rather threatening for Erdogan? There is a common understanding, uh, ground for cooperation, established more or less from 2014 between the Nationalists and what Erdogan represents. Islamists turned into sort of a corrupt group of politicians. That cooperation is as strong as, as before. The succession... In term in that context, I think is easy to to analyze the system built and confirmed and consolidated with the referendum in 2017, and also the the elections, the recent elections in 2023, basically declared and announced to the world of the comeback of the old state with all its elements, uh, guardians of Turkish Republic. The, on the on the right flank, including also the sort of you know subversive elements, that is where we are. So you you're saying that the nationalists can still maintain their alliance with the Islamists, and this is something that's quite durable, resilient. But I mean, it's very much centered on this one figure of Erdogan, mm. who you know we have to admit is one of the br most brilliant politicians of his age, not just in the region. If, if not would, the most, most successful. So, I mean, who on the Islamist side, you mentioned Sinan Ogan for the nationalist right, who among the Islamists could even pretend to fill his shoes? I mean, we see this figure of his 
younger son-in-law, Selçuk Bayraktar, and more importantly, I would argue, of his younger daughter, Sümeyye, who is extremely mm. bright, and I think resembles her father in many ways in her worldview, plus she's had this Western education on top mm. of it, making her possibly a more, even more sophisticated figure, though, you know, every bit as ideologically minded as her dad. Do you see them as a, a possible you know, I won't say replacement, but as successors for their father, can they, you know, sustain what he's built? It's a far more difficult question to, to, to approach. I think it's because of the extremely vertical reconstruction of the AKP post Gezi protests and post referendum. I think uh, the most important part is time most important element is time amongst ourselves observers and monitors and analysts i think it was selim koru who came closest to to analyzing this in a very interesting article and post erdogan period but he even he who follows the you know conservative heartland of politics could not come with a clear answer because as he pointed out, and I agree, uh, Selçuk Bayraktar may be a very successful business person, bright, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He has almost no experience of, of politics. And Turkish politics is a quagmire. You can easily get lost in that. Well, I'm, except- I, I'm, I'm guessing they might run him as a candidate for Istanbul, the mayor, to get him, throw him into politics. But, you know, this is speculation on my part. I right. don't have any real evidence that that will happen but if if that if that happens i think we will see it as an example or or sign uh, rather that he is being tossed into politics in post post getting his hands dirty learning the ropes and i think Mm. perhaps even as we speak he may be doing that but shifting away from you know domestic politics i mean on Mm. the world stage too i think everyone now acknowledges that erdogan and his regime will be around you know, at least for the next five years. And there you saw the rush to congratulate him. You heard Jake Sullivan, the U.S. National Security Advisor, describe Turkey as a democracy without even caveating that, which was quite interesting, even alarming, I'd say. So, I mean, in the past, we were all writing about how Turkey found itself so isolated. Clearly, Erdogan's kind of plugged that hole as well to some extent, hasn't he? And he he's on a surer footing now on the world stage. You know, you mentioned Jake Sullivan. There were many other politicians and also some enabling, I would call, analysts, you know, re-emphasizing the, the importance of Turkey having Erdogan as a leader rather than anybody else. And it has a lot to do with, of course, uh, the 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 refugee phobia and the kind of stability, quote-unquote, that Erdogan, in their eyes, represent. Turkey is, as you know, is, is going through multi-level crisis, systemic crisis, system crisis. And that also not only is about the Afghan-Syrian refugees based in Turkey, but, you know, if Turkey is lost in the fog of crisis... You know, Syrian example for the West showed even a small country can cause so much trouble 
quote unquote, for the for the for the West. And imagine Turkey, eighty five million uh, inhabitants and in the population, you know, being dragged into instability, not necessarily civil war, but you know, social unrest. It would cause even further bigger wave of refugees. So that, those were the reasonings behind closed doors or in private conversations. I, I'm sure you have also witnessed those kind of observations and, and remarks. So that has basically cemented Erdogan as, as an accepted leader of Turkey that people, everyone involved has to do business with. And of course, the weakening of Putin, I think, accentuates Turkey's role in many respects and reinforces that need to keep Turkey stable because obviously... Paradoxically, yes. ...a source of instability now before us in Russia. Yes. You know, it's very alarming, of course. Interesting. There were equations made between Putin and Erdogan. The weaker Erdogan or the weaker Putin is the weaker the other. But Mm -hmm. as you point out... Clearly, it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. You know, if if Putin weakens, people will see more, the eyes will turn more on Erdogan as, as, you know, let's not lose Turkey because it will be, it will be more important even for us in the the dark times. I would argue that those critics who keep pointing to how close, quote unquote, Erdogan and Putin are by way of discrediting Erdogan. Mm -hmm don't understand that to the contrary to many western leaders that's an asset to have somebody from well your camp to some extent i mean turkey is after all a member of nato who has that kind of you know line to put i agree in some degree yes. of influence so the final question yavuz i guess is you know the economy which mm-hmm. was seen as erdogan's Achilles heel, the one thing that might bring him down, especially compounded by this very awful pair of earthquakes that devastated Mm. so much of the country. Is that still a real threat? Or do you think he's managed to get around that one too by bringing in Shimshek and allowing interest rates to rise, Mm. even if not as high as some would hope? Has he sort of survived that potential crisis as well is well i mean there are far more far far more deeply you know knowledgeable analysts on economy than myself but what i see is clearly there are two opposition focal points for for erdogan one is the as we mentioned himself his health his old age and second main opposition is now the the economy the economic crisis and that doesn't change because you know, now the opposition is fragmented. The political opposition is is has no compass anymore. Internal fightings, etc., and deceit of of the of the voters, especially the CHP main opposition voters, and also the Kurdish voters of the HDP. Those are the losers, of real losers of the elections. But uh, regarding going back to economic crisis, all we see is again sort of. Turk kind of way of dealing with the the reshuffling of of the economic management, Mehmet Şimşek and also the central bank governess, Khan. But so far, what we have seen are palliative measures and also the maneuvering in the second circle surrounding Şimşek and Erkan, in in the other parts of the the you know, economy departments, 
are showing us, telling us that Erdogan is not really willing to leave the stage and autonomy to, to those people, especially these two who he appointed. And Lira continues to bleed even more powerfully. And to put it simply, there's no money. And the only place to be hopeful about are the Gulf countries. And that's why the the efforts are focusing on the Emirates and maybe other Gulf countries as well. No more than that. And this bleeding will continue. But I am quite uh, certain that by one, one way or another, Doan will be able to control the economy until the elections, until the local elections in, in spring of 2014. Then, see, but it's unpredictable because as long as you cannot stop the weakening of Turkish lira, things may get out of hand far more, far beyond Erdogan's predictions, although one should give him all credit about being a master of movements and steps, but this time... The economy as the main opposition as is as is relentless. So we can agree then that there is that vulnerability still. Mm-hmm. That Absolutely. That could be leveraged by the opposition if they could ever get their acts together. Mm-hmm. Yes, Which, I agree with that. Of course. <laughs> well, thank you again, Yamuz. And yeah, just keep reporting. <laughs> Pleasure to be with you. Thank you, Yamuz. Thank you. And this brings us to the end of our latest podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Yavuz and continue to tune in to On the Middle East. Go to our website, www.al-monitor.com for objective and in-depth coverage of developments in the region. Thank you and goodbye.